Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Webmartin Consulting and Tax Ed, to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Neil Jones, Director of Tax Banter. Neil, welcome to Tax Yak. Thanks, Robin. Good to be here. Nice to have you with me. So we're going to have a yak today about the superannuation landscape. And a really good place to start will be what does the landscape look like? I understand you've got some information that shows where we're up with self-managed funds. Yeah, we often get a publication from the tax office and the June quarter now has just come out over the last week. So the self-managed super fund landscape at the moment is still growing. So in other words, people are still interested in looking after their own retirement destiny. So as of June 2018, we have just under 600,000 self-managed superannuation funds, uh, 596,000. That covers up just on 1.12 million members. So the growth again for the year ended 30 June 18 has gone about another 14,000 self-managed super funds. So the net growth, there are retirements, there are wind-ups. And there are new established funds. And but that is since 1 July 17, so since yes, the reforms. Yes, 14,000 mm. new self-managed super funds. Of course, that statistical publication has all the nitty-gritty details about the demographics and how many are one-member, two-member, three-, four-member funds. You might recall the government is expanding that to six members in the near future. So I'll be interested to see how many people actually want to have more than four in their self-managed super funds. But that's a now, a stat that will come up in a several years' time. Just that, coincidentally on that, we still have 93% of funds are single or two-member funds. So there's very few that have more than two in them. Total money in self-managed super funds, the sector, is now a net $722 billion. So, again, that's a bit of a net calculation. So, 750 in assets with some liabilities. But now it is the single biggest sector of the uh, $2.4 trillion superannuation industry. So, a lot of money, Big lot numbers. more people, and still growing. Okay. So, now that we're a, a well and truly a year beyond the reforms of 1 July 2017, maybe a, an opportunity to sit back and say, where have we landed? How's it all going one year on? I suppose the real question to see where the status is. Is it fair and is it sustainable? So Scott Morrison's first budget uh, introduced the fair and sustainable superannuation changes. Most took effect from the 1st of July 2017, as you said. Uh, where are we at? Well, I think generally the view is that you know the, the $1.6 million pension transfer balance cap, most people are familiar with that now. There are still some excess uh, determinations being issued by the tax office where people have put more into their retirement phase than the 1.6. So are you seeing those being done efficiently by the ATO? Uh, I think, yeah, it's fair to say that they're onto it fairly quickly. The determination comes out because, remember, there's an interest cost there for every day that you're in excess. So tax office does have a, you know, I suppose, a, a requirement to notify the member as soon as possible so that we can take action to get us back under the 1.6. So I think most people have become fairly familiar. It's a bit more de rigueur, you know, it's day to day. Everyone seems to be aware. There's still the occasional glitch where someone puts more into the retirement phase than they should. But you're right, the tax office is doing a good job notifying them of that excess. And there's still some problems where there's no excess, but the system has probably reported it. And I'll mention that in a, in a little while too. Um, so... 
the general transfer balance cap, the 1.6 moving into retirement phase, most people are good with that. There's still occasional glitches, as I say. The CGT transitional relief. Now, hopefully everyone remembered that they had to make that decision by the lodgement date of their 2017 superannuation return. Uh, I don't know if you're experiencing out there talking to people, but you had to do it by that date. Now, the tax office was magnanimous by extending lodgement date right out to the 2nd of July. So you did get a bit of time to deal with it. You had 12 months, basically, to work out whether you were going to take relief or not. Neil, I came across an accountant uh, recently where, uh, due to workloads and, and other circumstances, they didn't get one or more done. And the question was asked of me, is there any latitude on this? Now, I'm very confident the ATO is going to basically say, you had your opportunity, we were very firm on the rules, we gave you extensions, and the door is now closed on that. And I think that's right. I mean, it's not the tax office exercising judgment here. The law said you had to lodge or make your choice to take that transitional relief, you know, the deemed disposal and reacquisition, effectively resetting your cost base. You had to do it with the lodgement of that return. So there's no discretion for the tax office. So I don't know that they're being, you know, we gave you enough time, we've set the rules. The rules were set by Parliament and the tax office is just going to administer the law. Let me apply. I know there has been other circumstances where they might be generous and, you know, exercise a practical compliance guideline approach to things that are not quite within the law. But here, there was more than adequate time. So uh, if you missed the boat, you've missed the boat. All right. Can we turn our attention now to the T-bar reporting or the transfer balance account report? Yeah, recognising things that affect your pension phase. In other words, when you move money into retirement phase, when you move money out of retirement phase, the commissioner needs to keep track of that. So what we call event-based reporting, uh, the transfer balance account, you know, it's a fictional account. It's not in your general ledger. It's not in your profit and loss. It's a it's a tax fiction. It's a little bit like a franking account. It is a bit like a imputational franking account. So it's a work paper effectively, but the commissioner does need to be aware of what's moving in and out of retirement phase. So, you know, the law provides what grows the transfer balance account. So in other words, what's accrediting to it? And when you're taking money out of retirement phase, what is a debiting to that? Now, even though the commissioner has set the reporting guidelines for our um, self-managed super funds, as you know, if you've got a member with a million dollar balance, then you will be a quarterly reporting entity. If you've got no one with over a million dollars, you're an annual remitter, and you can do it when you do your tax return. My advice and counsel to people would be, depending on certain transactions, I would be reporting my events sooner than my legal requirement. I'll give an example of that. Um, all this managing of self-managed super funds, you know, the planner put me into it, I still don't really understand it, so I'm gonna get out. Okay, I'm going to collapse my self-managed fund and put my funds with an APRA fund. So there will be, and I'm in pension phase, so there will be a commutation of my pension. The money will leave my self-managed super fund and it will go into an APRA fund. Now, the APRA fund reports very frequently. So they'll report that there's money come in, and if I want to keep my pension, which I probably will, that APRA fund will commence my retirement income stream for me. So what that now looks like is we have money received by the APRA fund, which is reported promptly to the ATO, and meanwhile... I haven't told him about my collapse of my self-managed fund. In other words, the commutation of my personal income stream out of my SMSF. So it looks like I've got double the amount in super. Now, the commissioner, because he's on the ball, will issue a determination. And to avoid such problems, what I'm suggesting is as soon as there's an event, such as that in an SMSF, do a T-bar, in other words, report that event. And so do that voluntarily. Do it voluntarily. And then you you avoid having the reversing of the work. You know, there's an excess to term. No, I'm not in excess. 
and you've got to just you go through the pain and anguish of trying to rectify something that shouldn't have been a problem in the first place. So to be clear, there's no legal requirement to do it when the event occurs, but it's just going to save you some administrative uh, headaches down yeah, the track. alleviate mm. headaches because, as I say, there's been a couple of these situations already where clearly the tax officer said you're in excess of your 1.6 general transfer balance cap, but the reality is I'm not. It's just that I have, you know, different timelines for reporting. So, yeah, my view would be report when an event happens. Don't wait for your legal obligation. Good advice. Before we move off the reforms, I wondered if you could comment on some observations I've been making and comments I've been making about long-term what all this looks like. We've got a restriction of 1.6 million in terms of your transfer balance account. So obviously anything above that limit is sitting in accumulation. Upon the death of the members, let's say there are two members in the fund, Mm. husband and wife, let's assume we've got a nice healthy fund. So we'll go over around a figure of say $5 million, $10 million, something like that. We know that the the wife, when she receives these death benefits, she cannot roll his amounts back to accumulation. She can roll her pension amount back to accumulation, but not his. And his has to be cashed out. So my point is, if we look big picture across this $722 billion that's sitting in self-managed environment, over the course of the decades ahead, how does this look? Because when these members start dying, particularly with some of these healthier funds, it won't be able to be retained within the superannuation environment. Correct. So it comes out. We've got limits on getting it back in. $25,000 a pop isn't going to get you very far when we're talking five or $10 million. You but may or may not be able to use your three hundred. So isn't there going to be a massive shift out of superannuation in self-managed or potentially in after-managed funds as well hands. into personal hands? Correct. And then what happens to it? Well, they invest but the earnings on the investments will bear tax at the progressive or marginal rates. Now, that's not um, outside what the policy policy initiatives are. In other words, super is to exist for retirement and having met a condition of release, the money should exit the superannuation environment. Well, death is the ultimate condition of release. Absolutely, it is. If your member is no longer with us and unfortunately has passed, then that money either by reversion continues to be paid as an income stream to a dependent, that's still okay, subject, of course, to the cap. And so if our reversionary interest holder has already got a retirement phase account... And that's maximised. At least there, as you mentioned, there's a, as an opportunity because the crediting to the transfer balance account is delayed by 12 months. That allows the reversionary interest member to deal with their own balance, which might fold back their current retirement phase to accumulation so they can keep theirs in super, but the death benefit must either be cashed, and the CIS regs are pretty clear there. There's only two ways to cash a death benefit. Pay an income stream, which has to be to a dependent, or it must be cashed as soon as practicable and leave the superannuation environment. So you're right. In the future, we will have, I don't know about you know, $722 billion, but there will be a fair amount of money leaving the superannuation environment. Would you agree that in many cases there are benefits sitting in super that are going to far exceed what is needed for retirement? Even if we live to a ripe old age of 110. Well, who knows? Depends on your lifestyle. But but if you think about those, you know, we are an ageing population. We're rapidly ageing. Our life expectancy is getting fairly significant. Uh, by 2055, you know, females 97, males 95 is our life expectancy. Now, whether that happens or not, but that's the current projection. You still going to be training when you're 95? Uh, no. No, I hope. Well, I don't think I'll be here. But the the book on that's got uh, very short odds. <laughs> um, yeah, I think 
Yeah, the environment of super has always been to provide for retirement. But uh, as we age, you know, you say, well, is there too much money there to rely on our, for our lifestyle? Well, some might have that. I think we've still got six super funds within excess of 100 million uh, self-managed. I think I could retire with that amount of money. I'm just ponder, pondering that at the moment. I'd like to have a crack at it. but Better buy you but, a nice case of red. But what, what is our medical expenses going to be? Uh upkeep on homes, um, all sorts of things. You know, we you're not sure exactly what quality of life you'll have as we age. But, you know, you can't... If we're going to live to be in our mid-90s, you can't have someone at 65 retire and stick their hand out and say, I'll have all my money because you're going to potentially live for another 30 years. So, you know, if we look at... And I know today's we're talking about the current landscape, but if I was to project forward and say, what's the landscape look like in the future... The next major change I see is capping how much you can access by way of lump sum. In other words, restricting how much they take. Uh, and that might be something... At any given time at. throughout their retirement. Yeah, it may be that, you know, in, if you want to take it in a lump sum, you might be restricted to, in that particular payment to a certain number. You know, it might be a million dollars or, or some capping of the amount you can access. Remember the good old days of the old allocated pension, the minimums and maximums? I know that was an income stream, but that did cap yeah. at a, a maximum amount. But we also had the concessional environment capped by reasonable benefit limits. So there was, there was a, I suppose, a restriction on getting it in and, and getting it out. So that would be my tip for the major future change in super. Thank you. All right, moving into the current environment, we've got a number of legislative measures still sitting before the Parliament and in particular the Senate. So could you please comment on firstly the objective of superannuation? Well, I think this one's just sitting on the back burner, isn't it? Um, and maybe but, listeners aren't even aware, but okay. a bill was introduced some time ago to talk about what is the objective of super. <laughs> the government felt the need to perhaps spell out what super was for, how hence with all these changes, you know, what, what is super for? Well, legislatively, the government intends that superannuation, the objective should be to provide income in retirement and therefore be less of a drain demanding Commonwealth pensions. Now, I would have thought we already had an objective of super in the CIS Act, and that's, you know, the sole purpose test. You know, superannuation must exist for the sole purpose of providing retirement benefits to the members. I think what the government was saying is, what's a retirement benefit? You know, is it how much you can gather to live off when you retire, or is it how much you should earn? So in other words, income in retirement rather than the accumulation of wealth. So that's sort of stalled. It's on the back burner. If you think about it, though, the government's already introduced something called a first homeowner super saver scheme. So the objective of super might be to help you buy a house. So it's sort of, it's just sitting there and maybe one day uh, when Parliament is prorogued with the federal election early next year, that will lapse and the question will be is do they bring it back? Well, it could be one of those bills that uh, does lapse with the calling the election and that's the last we see yeah. of it. All right, the next measure, improving accountability and member outcomes in superannuation. Um, improving member outcomes. Hopefully that's not an oxymoron. But number two bill, which is still before Parliament, there's a couple of things. Um, every member, I suppose, or every employee really should have a right to choose where their super goes. Now, some industrial agreements out there are saying to people, if you work in this industry, your super goes in this fund. So some industrial agreements have mandated where your super should go. Well, the government wants to make sure that everyone has a choice. So the first schedule of that bill will be allowing new employees who work where that might have been a tight arrangement the opportunity to choose where their super goes. So that's for new agreements negotiated, new employees. If an existing employee wants to get choice and ask the employer, they will have to comply with that. But there's no mandated 
requirement for existing employees. And the second part of the bill is to make sure that I'm going to use a term that the government uses, um, unscrupulous employers. Now, it's a technical change to make sure that where an employee's salary sacrifices extra super, the boss really can't count that as if it was his own superannuation contribution. So we're just tweaking those rules to say that if an employee wants to put more into super, the boss shouldn't really get a credit for having made that contribution. So it doesn't count toward the boss's 9.5% guaranteed obligation and it would be added back as part of the remuneration to calculate ordinary times earnings on what the boss should be paying super on. In other words, Robin, if you sacrificed extra super at Taxpander, I couldn't count that as my Taxpander's contribution to see whether I've met my SG obligation. And yet some employers have been doing that because um, legally they can yeah, at the legally moment. Legally it mm. has been permitted. Now that's supposed to commence for the first quarter of this year. In other words, the September quarter has now finished and the day we're recording this, we're only a week away from that first report and payment of super. So it's not yet law. So if I'm an employer and this is happening, what do I do? How much do you pay? What do I pay? Now, do I underpay with a risk that I'm exposed to penalties? Or do I pay up what I think I should pay, even though the law is not yet the law? So this an unsatisfactory environment, or will the government, when they finally get around to dealing with this piece of law, change the date of effect? I think it's also notable that what you're describing as a mechanism, so the amount that's being salary sacrificed, can't be used to satisfy SG obligations and is included in ordinary times earnings. Yeah, for, sing back if you're, yeah. for single touch payroll reporting purposes, there's a separate bill before Parliament that will make a consequential amendment yeah, well, the picking up on this amendment. To, yeah, correct. So the ATO needs to know about those salary sacrificed extra super bits because they do have an impact. So that will be reported through the single touch payroll system. So critically, we're not reporting sales sack as a separate amount, but the point is that the sales sack now forms part of ordinary times earnings, which is the basis mm. of the SG reporting Correct. obligation through yeah. STP. Now, the big one that is still getting a lot of attention, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of concern now because we are nearly six months into a so-called amnesty period and yet the bill remains before the Senate and we've got no guarantee this is going to go through or go through in its current form. So what should employers do in this environment? Well, two things. First thing I'll mention is if you haven't met your super obligations, then clearly you're, you have to comply. In other words, it's your employees who've missed out. So if an employer hasn't met their super obligations, come forward, fess up and make good the payments. Now, if it's a shortfall, yes, we know that there's a $20 admin charge, there's an interest component, there's Division 7 penalties. The amnesty announced by Kelly O'Dwyer back on the 23rd 4th of May, really the only thing that could possibly impact that if the legislation doesn't go through is the tax deductibility of the payment. And the admin component of $20, well, admin, which is yeah. more minor. Admin, yeah. But the main issue, like you haven't done the right thing. Pay the super for the employee, put it in their superannuation fund, top up with interest, which you should have done because you haven't paid on time. Okay, if the amnesty happens, you won't have a $20 admin charge. My, my view is you've got to go to the ATO. Okay, you have to go. Now, if the bill doesn't pass, okay, you won't get a tax deduction. But by going to the tax office now, you're going to get a good deal. And in fact, the ATO's website and the forms all talk about being an amnesty payment for the SG shortfall. It is still a shortfall payment. So if I go to the tax office, come forward, get on the front foot, he'll waive my Division 7 penalties. If the law doesn't pass, the $20 admin charge will still be applicable and you won't get a tax deduction. 
But, you know, a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about should I wait till it passes? Well, my view, you shouldn't because you've done the wrong thing. And once STP kicks in from the middle of next year, presuming that goes through Parliament as well, the ATO is going to have much greater transparency. And I'm not suggesting STP goes back retrospectively, but it will give the ATO a better idea of the profile of the employer. Mm. And, yes, it's possible they could go back and, and look at some quarters already gone if you haven't come forward. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, the fact that that hasn't yet passed and we're six months down the track, to me, if you've been an employer and you had an obligation to pay super for your staff and you haven't, get it right. You've got to make good. It's not a discretion. You've broken the law. You know. Well, you haven't complied with yeah, the current correct. law. Yes. Yeah. There is also a bill before Parliament talking about some SGC changes, in particular the ability for the Commissioner to issue further penalties and issue directions orders. Yeah, again, that's to stop. I don't think anyone will violently object to these things. It just gives the Commissioner a little bit more weaponry to make sure employers behave. As you mentioned, you know, the direction orders to either get yourself educated uh, the person responsible for handling super within an organisation needs to know what they're doing. So if that's not happening, happening, the commissioner can uh, issue a direction to go and get some education. The other one is directors who have not paid super of a company that has failed to meet their obligations can be personally liable for the super guarantee shortfall. Now, the mechanism, this is mechanical, really, it's a mechanism issue, but the director could be hit for the penalty, but there's no formal requirement for him other than the director penalty notice to pay the bill. He gets notified of the liability, but there's no formal mechanism to tell him to pay it. So the commissioner can now issue a direction, or this proposed law will give him a power to issue a direction to pay. Now, the consequences of failing that direction can be 12 months in jail. So, you know, the penalties are being beefed up. It's a bigger stick the tax office has to waive at delinquent employers. I understand also they're tweaking the rules. So the normal uh, three-month rules, so, for example, if you have not reported your withholding or your SGC amount and that remains unreported for at least three months, then you've got this uh, point at which the director can be held personally liable. And I understand that they're proposing to remove that three-month rule for SGC. Correct. That will be brought back to the obligation of when you should have met your SG. So from the moment you don't pay your SGC, the ATO could then yeah. expose the director to personal yeah, liability. Correct, and that's fair mm. enough. Again, you haven't done the right thing. Okay. Changes to limited recourse borrowing arrangements. Yeah, it's been one of my pet hates at the moment and uh, I've had a couple of discussions. Um, the government is proposing that we calculate in your total super balance, which to me is an asset calculation, you know, how much have I got? If I cashed out, what can I have? My total super that to me is an asset calculation. But what they're proposing is to add a liability to that calculation. Now, as an accountant and debits and credits, you know, assets are assets, liabilities are liabilities. So to add to your total super balance a liability, to me, seems to be, you know, an oxymoron. I understand why they're doing it, and it's probably to prevent an abuse which may or may not be planned. In other words, the ability to perhaps take your money out because you've met a condition of release pump it back in, but not by way of a contribution, but by way of a loan. So the net balance of the fund, if you like, doesn't alter. You know, you've got an asset that's been funded by a liability, so the net position doesn't change, but you've dropped your balance by taking that money out. Now you could possibly put more in in that concessionary tax environment and put it in retirement phase and get the benefit of the exempt earnings. So it's to combat that, but you may not have even been thinking of doing that. The problem is the premise of this amendment is that you've got into an arrangement to withdraw, to re-contribute and get a better outcome, but if you never withdrew in the first place, then someone regard this as a little unfair. 
and it is fairly limited in its application. So you've got to admit an unconditional release. In other words, your benefits have become unrestricted, non-preserved. You can take it whenever you like. Or the funding has been made by a related party to the member. In other words, the limited recourse borrowing is a related party loan. Um, all existing LRBAs are grandfathered, so it's only someone who does something from now on effectively. All right, new policies. We've got a proposal to bring in a three-year audit cycle, which is um, getting a lot of attention in the, the the profession, and I can't say most of it's positive. No, it's a dumb idea with respect to our legislative. Um, Tell me what you really think, Neil. It's, you know, the first program in an audit works program is probably verify opening balances. Now, if I haven't seen the fund for three years, how long is that going to take me? Now, the stated objective here is to reduce compliance costs. But if my auditor has to spend time to verify an opening balance because he hasn't seen the fund for three years, it's going to take extra time. I spoke to an auditor yesterday who looks after many thousands of funds and he said that over the years when someone's walked in, say, with five years' worth of, of years to audit, they always like to think that they'll be able to do this more efficiently, but he said the reality is that's never yeah, the case. No. Um, plus the discussion paper put out by Treasury basically says you'll have to do an annual audit if a certain event happens, and the list of events is long. And it's common. Start a pension, stop a pension, new member joining, start an LRBA. So my gut sense is nobody really wants the three-year audit cycle. And speaking of auditors, another thing that's come up very recently, you know, hot off the press, is a couple of recent decisions where a member has had a loss from an investment in their self-managed super fund and has looked to see who to blame for that loss and has laid the blame squarely at the feet of the auditor. Now, Cam and Bear Proprietary Limited, which is the trustee of a self-managed fund, and a more recent one, uh, Ryan Wealth, the auditor has been found to have been the cause of the member's loss. Now, to me, this is um, placing a serious issue around auditing of self-managed super funds. Are um, these extraordinary findings? Uh, that to me, they are. I'm still digesting them and I'm still analysing them. But if you think about it, a lot of SMSF auditors are, let's just say, you know, $500 fee. Um, you've got to do a compliance audit. You've got to do a financial audit so that the financial reports are fairly straight and you know, stated. Do I now have to go into, say, a unit's in a unlisted trust and say what's that trust doing and is the carrying value of that unit a fair value um, and again for property development now you'll spend money spend money will you be able to realize it and recoup it so if i've invested in a property trust and it's still building what's the value of the unit now if it is an order to, to express an opinion on that and let's say the property never sells and therefore there's losses they might risk for that now where does the trustees sit in all of this. This is a self-managed environment well, where the, the trustee yeah. is taking on the responsibility of making their own investment choices. Well, that's the whole framework with self-managed super funds. You are self-managed. You have the trustee and you're going to make decisions. So there's got to be a bit of, you know, your own behaviour and your own at risk and take responsibility. Now, in the Cam and Bear decision, the initial decision said, okay, the audit accounts were misdescribed. The auditor should have picked it up. So there was a mistake, but that didn't cause the loss but subsequently on appeal has been found to have been the trigger and the cause of loss, but they've said that the trustees also should have known about it, so there's a contributory negligence. But, but that was only 10% correct. in that case for the trustee. They only assessed the trustee on a 10%. Now, in Ryan Wealth, I'm not sure yet, I haven't gone into that in detail, but you'd have to think that the audit profession is starting to get a bit nervous with these two recent decisions. It is a worrying development for auditors, there's no doubt about that. Mm. 
Uh, final comment, there's some regulations that have been registered in uh, late September on the 28th, and these will be bringing self-managed funds within the Superstream environment by 30 November 2019. But it's only in respect of what I would basically call capital movements, so it's rollovers yeah, and transfers. Right. Correct, yeah. So it's just basically, and uh, not before 30th November next year. So, you know, there's a need to report rollovers, you know, money moving from one fund to another. How do we do that reporting? Should it be via the electronic platforms? And the, basically the governor's saying, yes, it should. So Superstream will extend for those sort of transactions. So that, At the moment, SMS have carved out of that definition. That basically gives them about a year to yeah. get their software and their IT yeah. and, and all their systems in order to report that. And they should already have, you know, for contributions, they should already have their electronic signature addresses and those sort of things. But this will facilitate, movement, as you say, capital movements, um, balances between funds. All right, thank you very much, Neil, for joining me today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm -hmm.